Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Thank you, Hilde. Today's guest is Dr. Raymond Osaragabon, treating patients in the southern part of the country in Tennessee and Mississippi, specializing in hematology and oncology. Our guest is here to talk with us about barriers to healthcare and overcoming hurdles, particularly in black and rural communities. A very important piece of the lung cancer puzzle that I know you've been wanting to cover. So, Hildy, take it away. Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, Ray. I'm so thrilled that you have been able to join us today. We spoke earlier this year um, at a meeting and um, so many topics that I'm very, very interested in. So thank you for being with us. Um, but I'd like to start by um, asking you if you would be willing to share your own background with our audience. I know for a fact, at least from a, you know, a website fact, that you began your career in lung cancer in the 1990s. And at that time, a lot of folks questioned, what, you know, what are you doing? What's, what, what kind of choice is that? To focus on a disease where the life expectancy is so poor. So can you tell us what guided you in this direction and had you going against the tide of opinion? Yes, thank you, Hilde. It's my pleasure and honor to join you today, and thank you for inviting me. Yes, uh, my, my name is Ray Osaragabo. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist um, here at the Baptist Cancer Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and yes, I uh, started this journey completely um, in a different direction, uh, intending to um, specialized in hematology uh, because I was interested in hemoglobinopathy, sickle cell disease, uh, to be able to go back to my home, Nigeria, with skill sets that I could apply uh, that would be very relevant to a population. But um, events took a different turn. I found myself at the DA in Amarillo, Texas, uh, where there was no sickle cell disease. But what there was a lot of was lung cancer. And, and even though in my formal HEM-ONC uh, fellowship training, lung cancer had not been an area of priority or interest, um, just the sheer amount of need there was all around me in the VA um, kind of piqued my uh, curiosity. And one thing led to another, um, and here we are today. Uh, all I do is thoracic oncology. Uh, if you had made this prediction to me, um, 30 years ago, I would have been entirely disbelieving. But you know, you 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 propose one thing, and you know, fate disposes um, a different thing. And yes, indeed, at the time, lung cancer was a bleak landscape. Uh, it was a story of uh, death. You you said lung cancer, and the picture everybody had was uh, death. Even among clinicians, uh, there was that. Um, nihilism about it. Uh, and, and there was a period when w my old hemoglobinopathy uh, colleagues would see me uh, and, and say, whoa, you disappeared off the face of the earth. What do you do these days? And I <laughs> feel uh, the need to whisper uh, lung cancer. And they would cringe and go, why? And of course, <laughs> the answer to the question why is, why not? 
there, there is a lot of need. And if you want to be relevant, I think you want to be serving um, true needs. So, so here we are. Now, I think that's a mark of genuine dedication because um, depending on what you're looking for, if you're publishing, no one's interested in null results. They want positive results that they can publish. So a lot of researchers did not go into studying lung cancer because the outcome was poor. And so that was um, several years ago now in the 1990s. And things look are, are looking up and looking better now. There are a lot of interesting um, medications that have been developed, targeted therapies, immunotherapies. So there's much more hope, definitely more hope than there was back in the 1990s. Um, so I know one of your interests, and I, I, I love this, is in um, rural populations. And the reason why I say that as a, don't listen to anybody, but as a kind of a, a Bostonian urban person, it's like, rural? What are we talking about here? What's rural? Obviously, so much of our country actually has vast rural areas. And so can you tell our audience more about lung cancer in rural areas and what, you know, what kind of an impact geography often has on a person's health? Thanks, Hilly. So, of course, where, where you live uh, heavily determines how you live and how you die, unfortunately. Um, we have heard the term disparities uh, banded around, um, and typically when people think of disparities, they instantly home in on race. But, but there are many types of disparities, one of which is, is geographic, another of which is um, rurality. So if you look at the lung cancer, or indeed any cancer mortality map of America, you find that it is not evenly spread. There are dense clusters in certain parts and uh, much lighter in other parts. And if you uh, deconstruct the map from um, a national to a state level down to a county level, you find even more striking differences. So even within the same states, you have areas that have dense clusters of, of, of disease, cancer, lung cancer, and others that have uh, less, that are less dense. Living in a rural area um, seems to be strongly associated with higher uh, rates of cancer and higher pound for pound, stage for stage, worse death risk uh, for, for cancer. Um, the answer to the question, why is it so, is multifaceted. One of, one of it, of course, is the underlying risk factor for lung cancer is um, tobacco use, cigarette tobacco use. And that tends to be much more socially accepted uh, in rural areas. Um, for many different reasons, not the least of which is a lot of these agrarian parts, especially in the South, were also uh, heavy tobacco uh, uh, growers. But beyond that, um, there seems to be other. There seem to be other reasons. One of which we we're beginning to to look at is environmental um, pollution, particulate matter in the air uh, that we breathe in in various parts of the of the country. And, and uh, 
Um, there is also, of course, the challenge of access to um, good quality care or even to care at all. The more remote um, one is, uh, the, the, the harder it is to gain access to preventive care, early diagnosis, uh, proper treatment, or even any treatment. We also know that the socioeconomics of rurality in America also uh, seems to be associated with challenging economics. So, so the rural poor we have heard about, and, and they are at um, significantly higher risk for pretty much everything. I, I was interested when you were talking about maybe uh, some environmental factors beyond cigarettes, what were you thinking of? Because I think the first thought is, in terms of particulates in the air, that urban areas would be much more dangerous and toxic than rural areas. But maybe that's not entirely true, or maybe it is true. Yes. Um, so there are different types of environmental pollutants, of course. We, we know that the Traditionally, we have said the second most common risk factor for lung cancer is radon gas. Radon is um, a natural uh, byproduct of uranium. Um, and the classic thing has been people who uh, live in, uh, in homes that have basements uh, may be at higher risk to have uranium, um, radon uh, collection. But radon is also, uranium is also more likely to be uh, found in less heavily um, populated parts of the, of the country. There are also other uh, things like uh, beryllium and uh, other particulate matter that, that you can get from mines, for example, that can be risk factors uh, for lung cancer. But even beyond that, beyond the substance itself, one of the things we're beginning to learn is there's a certain size of particulate matter that floats in the air that can be inhaled and, and gets all the way down into the farthest, uh, the, the nether regions of the lungs, that people are now beginning to um, examine as a, an inciting agent, especially for the types of lung cancer that are not uh, associated with uh, smoking, such as EGFR, mutated lung cancer. And the feeling is that, especially in the southern United States, that these that particular size of particulate matter is more prevalent in, in the air in those regions, especially in rural parts of those regions, such as in Mississippi and uh, Arkansas and uh, Alabama, Tennessee, places like that. One of the issues is that it's just available in the air per se. Like if you're driving through one of those regions, you might be more likely to come across some of those particulates. But I also wonder about occupations, you know, and what are the occupations that rural um, individuals, you know, are engaged in? I often think um, up here, like driving through Vermont or New Hampshire, there's like vast areas that there aren't many houses. There could be one house here and then not for quite a distance. And I always think to myself, well, what does that person do for a living? Where do they go? What do they do? So um, would you say that maybe some of the occupations also that are in rural areas might yes. lend yeah. themselves? So, so, so we know that we have known, for example, that mining is associated with lung disease, including cancer. There are certain types of 
substance is mined for. So silica, uh, beryllium uh, are the classic ones. Um, but but they're also, as we are trying to understand the reason why the fastest rising subset of lung cancers are lung cancers in people who never smoke, um, we're beginning to have to think a little bit beyond tobacco and conventional lung cancer inciting agents. And, and the, the theory that's emerging, one of the strongest theories that's emerging is this idea of uh, um, particulate matter of a certain size. And, and there is um, also pre-existing evidence that, that the air in these regions, of the, certainly of the United States that have the highest lung cancer um, per capita lung cancer incidence rates actually have probably some of the worst air. They're not necessarily evident to you in the sense of, oh, um, acid rain or, or uh, you know, smog, which is what you would find more commonly in, in urban areas. But, but these finely particulate matter, they seem to be particularly prevalent in the southern United States. In, in, in parallel with the uh, high levels of uh, lung cancer incidence. So, so the question is, are these additive to smoking? Are they synergistic with smoking? Meaning do they multiply rather than add on? Or are they truly independent um, of, of smoking? That is work that is still being done right now. I'm trying to figure that out. Two thoughts I had. One, one is that the rise in uh, non-smoking women is what's been stunning um, in, in terms of incidence of lung cancer. So I just wanted to go back to that point for a moment. I, I don't have any data on this. I'm not a sociologist. I'm a psychologist by day. And so I wonder in rural areas if there's less mobility than there are in urban areas where people tend to change jobs or go to New York and Chicago and here and there, but we're in urban areas. I'm thinking probably people are more rooted and don't necessarily move all that much. So what, what role might genetics play in all of this? I think you're onto something there, the sociology of it. You're right. Um, rural dwellers tend to be um, more more likely to have lived in the same area, in the same place. Uh, they're, they're, the, the duration of residence uh, of rural um, dwellers tends to be much longer than that of metropolitan uh, dwellers. So you can imagine if you happen to be in a place where there's particulate matter and you're digging into the soil, if you will, constantly, because that's what happens a lot in rural regions for many different reasons, farming being the most common one, but, but there are other things. Uh, mines tend to be in relatively more rural areas. You, you can imagine the longevity of residents in addition to the environmental pollution, which, which is also more likely to go undetected uh, and much less likely to be um, complained of and addressed um, would, in theory, expose people who live in these areas to a higher risk, uh, especially of inhaled uh, material. Doctor, I'd like to get your take on the need for more screening everywhere, but particularly in the region you're operating in right now, and the, and the question of education, if there is enough public education on the subject. 
Yeah, so you raise a you know a very hot burning topic, uh, Jordan. Screening for lung cancer saves lives. Doing a low dose CT scan once a year for people who are a certain age, right now fifty to eighty, if you will, and who have a history of smoking, use tobacco exposure, cigarette tobacco exposure, um, identifies enough people with lung cancer to give enough people a fighting chance of catching it early and doing something about it that you actually see a significant reduction in not just lung cancer deaths, but all deaths from all causes. So that's the thing to be excited about. And then the moment you say that, you would naively imagine that the moment that information becomes known, you flip the switch and everybody who could benefit bellies up to the bar and gains that benefit. Unfortunately, life doesn't work out that way. And one of the things that we're finding is not only are we lagging way behind where we ought to be as a nation uh, in, in um, screening for lung cancer, but the places where it is needed the most are the ones that are least likely to, to have um, people uh, getting screened for several reasons. Probably the most important is the lack of care delivery infrastructure. Just, you know, you can want to get screened all you want, but if nobody's telling you about it, if there are not that many places you could go to get it done, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to get it done. And then there is the knowledge aspect of that. But I wanted to make sure that we don't um, fall into the trap of victim blame. Um, yes, uh, patients need to be empowered uh, with knowledge. Yes, absolutely. But the main problem is not the patient. The main problem is the healthcare policies, the care delivery infrastructure, and the clinicians who are who patients entrust to help them make the right decisions. So with screening, the problem is if you don't have screening facilities available, well, nobody's going to get screened. If the doctors are not actively championing screening and talking to their patients about it and encouraging them and making it available to them, well, you know, they're not going to get screened. So yes, these problems are indeed even greater in the South. The people who are most at risk for lung cancer are people at the other end of the socioeconomic scale, who, who also unfortunately are more likely to be found in the places um, in the states in the South where lung cancer is so much more prevalent. And guess what? These also tend to be states that, for example, have refused to expand Medicaid um, under the Affordable Care Act. People who need it the most are the ones who politically are most disdainful of the, the benefit um, that, that they stand to gain from. So it's, it's a tangled problem. It doesn't have a simple solution. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, Upstage Lung Cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. 
We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hildy. We just did a podcast. As, as Jordan said, we I think we've done three so far on screening. Uh, the latest one we just did was called um, Changing the Failing Grades of Lung Cancer Screening. It's an alarmingly low number, like 3% of the United States who are eligible actually are being screened. But it reminds me of, I had this amazing opportunity once to be um, one of a number of women that were State Department fellows. And we got to do an exchange program with Brazil. Um, so there were heads of NGOs, nonprofit organizations, cancer ones in Brazil, and their heads came here. Um, the heads of those organizations came here. And um, there were 13 of us who went to Brazil. There were many things that I'll never forget about that experience, but the one that I really clung to, and if I were like a powerhouse with tons of money, <laughs> I would replicate this in the lung cancer community. But we went to one of the favelas, which is um, an area in Rio uh, where there were um, individuals living on the you know, mountainside. And we went to a favela. It was really a lovely place. Um, there was a, a reception room and the local folks were there. It was for breast cancer. And so there were people there to answer questions and people didn't know. They said, does deodorant cause breast cancer at that level? So, you know, people just aren't getting enough information that they can also trust that that's, that that's a real, a real item. Anyway, after this was over, after the, some of the um, young people did this drum corps, it was just wonderful. We all went outside and there was a van park there where women could go in and get a mammogram. And that's what I really wanted to see something like that happen to go into poor neighborhoods in urban areas and then definitely would work in rural areas. But there, as you say, it, it's going to take a lot of things, including trust that you know, you you know about lung cancer and you can trust that these screening procedures will not hurt you. In fact, they'll help you and that there is uh, care and treatment available. So that, that was just something I thought about, but I think that leads us to another area that wanted to talk about, which is another underserved community in many ways where there are barriers to care in the, in the black community. When I said about trust, it immediately made me think of the Tuskegee experiments where if the, our audience doesn't know about that, go ahead and Google it and just see how Black men were duped. It was a terrible thing. And I think it's had a long-lasting impact. Can you talk about your interest in the Black community and what your thoughts are? It's, you know, again, these are big, broad topics. So, so I think the issue of of health equity is front and center of um, our body politics today. I think we have come to understand that um, talking about healthcare disparities is not enough. 
uh, you know, you can think of it, uh, talking about healthcare disparities is a little bit of a Jeremiah. It's a complaint. It's a sort of woe is me, you know, there is all this stuff. But talking about health equity is, is more active. It, you're talking about how do you level the playing field? How do you make it where a desired um, outcome is available to everyone? Tall, short, rich, poor, black, white, you know, educated, not so well educated. Um, we, we know that um, there are many um, challenges that, that segments of our population face. In fact, one of the side benefits of something as horrible as the COVID pandemic that we have just emerged from or that we're still emerging from is that it actually shone a bright light in the most poignant way um, on the reality that there are many social inequities in this country and and the, the 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 things that drive what happens to any one person are oftentimes beyond their immediate control. Um, I, I think the observation of the George Floyd murder um, woke a lot of people up to the reality that injustice has not been banished um, from this country, and it gave in the starkest way validation of what certain segments of our population had complained of for a good long time. And then following hard behind that outrage was the idea that, whoa, with this pandemic, suddenly we're seeing it kill to a much higher degree people who were, you know, much less able to control the environment, their work hours, their work schedules, and the various interactions that they had and exposures to the virus um, than others like you and I, maybe, who, who mm -hmm. would have, have the luxury of being home, protected, for, and being able to quarantine ourselves. And then that mindset extended beyond the pandemic to say, wait a minute, all around us are these examples. Why is it that black people are more at risk for lung cancer? Why is it that stage for stage, two people with the same lung cancer have widely different outcomes? Why is it that what we know to be the best treatment for this condition is available to some people, but not to others? including those who are particularly high risk for the condition. There's no direct link between risk and likely access to life-saving care. Um, in fact, in many ways, it's the opposite. It's the people who are least at risk who have the greatest access uh, to, to care. Definitely, the Black experience is, is one, but, but my approach has been to try to find common cause. Say, to say that when we talk about disparity and we automatically think, oh, yeah, those poor Black people, man, they just can't catch a break. It's easy for us to isolate that and make it somebody else's problem. But, but I think when we recognize that there are many domains of disparity, of inequity, Blackness being one, poverty being another, poor education being another, living in a rural area being another, I think it begins to give us some understanding that there, but for the grace of God, go I.
It's not somebody else's problem. This could very well be my problem. And even if it's not my immediate problem, I probably know people in my network, friends, family, who have some kind of exposure to these problems. The challenge, of course, is the, 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 the challenge of intersectionality. So um, when you are poor, it is a problem. When you are Black and poor, it is an even bigger problem. When you are Black and poor and living in rural Mississippi, it is a really big problem. You know, um, and, and it has been very, in, just an amazing experience for me to work in the community, um, the region where I am, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, parts of Alabama, bits and pieces of the Missouri Boot Hill. To, to be here, it's just a, the, it's the world's greatest population lab. Um, I was curious uh, to come here because when I was um, younger, at the beginning of my career, um, I, I was full of, full, full of beans, full of energy, and it was all about solving problems, you know? Um, and, and I was at the VA at the time, and people would, you know, we had developed programs that people thought had some merit to them. But, but then every now and then somebody would say, well, but you know, you can do this here, but you know, it wouldn't fly anywhere else. And so taking on that challenge, it was like, where in the country do you really have problems in which these ideas could be tested? And, and you know, it didn't matter what the problem was, if it was a healthcare problem, the map of the region that had it the worst seemed always to be the same. It was the south, southern, southeastern part of the United States. So, so I came here fascinated by the population. Why, why is it that e even those on Medicare, uh, whether you're talking about heart disease, stroke, you know, diabetes, you know, lung cancer, any other cancer, you had, even when you controlled for many different things, including on paper, healthcare access defined by you're all on Medicare together, the outcomes were still very different. And the worst outcomes were still clustered in this part of the country. So it was fascinating you know, to me. And, and I, so I came here in 2005 and we've been able to look very closely at the population to try to understand where is this problem coming from and why is it the way it is? Well, it, it turns out at one level, there is this equal opportunity, bad outcomes you get. Uh, you know, a white person living in Mississippi uh, compared to a white Bostonian will have completely different care and outcomes. And then of course, within that equal opportunity, poor care and bad outcomes, you have internal differences, as we mentioned, black, white, rich, poor, uh, male, female, um, rural, urban, metropolitan, suburban. It's really a fascinating problem. Part of it is the healthcare delivery infrastructure is not nearly as good as it, it ought to be. Certainly not nearly as good as it should be given the amount of money that's poured into it. Um, part of it is the, the people who deliver care, the expectations from them are much lower than they probably should be. So the clinicians are a big part of the problem. Um, the, the, the financial rewards that clinicians and healthcare systems reap 
in this region significantly outstrip the benefit of the services that they provide. You, you know, and and um, that too is its own problem um, that is very worthy of close examination to try to resolve to try to resolve them. What's just so clear is that there are such complexities that face good health care um, being available for every citizen. So many complexities. And some of them for, oh, I don't know what you want to call it, for reasons of political ideology. People have different points of view about what should be available, doesn't need to be available. So there, there are all sorts of disparities, even among our just general population. And then if you take all of that into account um, and just look at what's available, as you said before, it's easy to blame patients. Why didn't you come in earlier? Why didn't you tell someone you were coughing? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? So it's very easy to blame patients. But when you're poor and you have to pay to go and see if somebody will listen to your chest, sometimes it's a choice between that and maybe putting food on the table for dinner for you, your family and your kids. I, I always want to, as you were saying, level the playing fields. I always feel really um, pulled to help the underdog. And, um, you know, I have a patient now who's in a medical system that's good, but I, in my humble opinion, isn't able to have enough of a voice in their treatment. So even if you're in a good system, if for some reason there's racism, there are a number of studies that have looked at a black person and a white person with all kinds of criteria that are comparable who go in to a, um, a healthcare setting and they get different levels of treatment. And that's not all the time, thank goodness, but it's the racism still is in the in those settings. So trying to solve complexities of these problems. And as I said, I'd like to do a podcast at some point on having a voice. And so if you're in an if you're an underclass, whatever that means, and it used to refer to women who were not treated the same as men, and it's still an issue or if you're a person of color, or if you're certain religions, these are all problematic. So I don't know that we're gonna solve all these problems, but as you say, there's a lot of overlap and we don't like to think about overlap. We like to think there's this group or there's that group and this this is the problem. And that, But I think trying to look at common denominators and trying to think about how we might go about making things better in general is a good goal. And it's not easy. Even that's not easy. Yeah, I like that, Hildy, what you said. Um, make things better. I think that's the key. I think a lot of times we are seduced by the satisfaction of describing a problem. And then we sort of walk away as if our job's been done. That's been one of my biggest um, complaints about health disparities research. Um, you know, there, there needs no ghost come from the great to tell us that this kind of person versus that kind of person with this particular condition, which has been described so many different times in other situations, you would find relevant to whichever little corner of it that you want to look at. 
oh, prostate cancer, breast cancer, uh, lung cancer, this or that. Th there is no great interest in that. I think what is interesting is can you do something about it? Can you find a solution to the problem that's sustainable, that is likely to transform the um, experience um, from what it traditionally was to something much better? And I think the answer is yes. If we have the will and if we make the effort and, and make take the pains to do so. I completely agree. Well, I love ending on an optimistic, upbeat, <laughs> upbeat note here. I want to thank you, Ray, so much for joining us. Um, we've hardly just exhausted this topic in any possible way, so I'm hoping you'll come back. I want to talk about other research you're doing. There's so much more. Very grateful you talk about things that, and with a perspective that isn't um, usual, which I love. So thank you very much. Thank you, audience. And I hope you've learned a lot. And I hope you'll be motivated to try to make things better in your own community. So thank you, Jordan, as always. And we'll see you next time. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.